this before we're doing a we're trying to do a school I don't know if you've all heard that at all you heard me talk about that at all but we've been trying to do a school for the last three years and um, a few weeks ago we found a property um, that was built as an education wing but never used and so it's a building that was built in 2008 and everything is new and everything is there um, it was a miracle and so we went there saw it and then we were trying to find a way to make the school happen this year, which I, go, I know it's a miracle if that was even the case. And so it looked like it was a possibility. And so we were talking with the broker realtor slash overseer of this group of churches. And uh, the lady texted me this week. So it's bad news, but really good news, okay? So don't get discouraged by what I'm about to tell you. Be encouraged by the aftermath. So the, she texted me this week and told me that uh, the church wants to make sure that they have all of their, um, their necessary uh, permitting and everything for the school slash preschool to exist there. Um, so it's gonna take them 90 days. And well, I mean, we don't have nine days to lose. We are already well into the deadline. And so uh, I was really kind of, she texts me this while I'm driving in the car on Wednesday. And I'm just like, and I felt like the Lord told me, you guys, you're gonna win, right? Say this with me, we win. Even if we lose, we still win. You understand that? Christians can't win. So I felt like the Lord was telling me you're going to win. So I started meditating on it, trying to hear the spirit on it. And I felt like, okay, well, we'll take it. We'll sign the lease. We'll take it next September. We'll do the school then. And I felt like as I just kept meditating on it, I felt like the Lord said, you have the pot that we could do a daycare slash preschool in January. So I called the broker. I said, look, this completely throws off the calendar. I said, how about we, they're going to give us two months rent. So this is the kind of the negotiations. So we take it in, in, uh, uh, November and we launch a preschool there slash daycare in November or excuse me January and then we do the school we start into the school uh, next September and she said that seems like a very reasonable offer she said I'm gonna present it to them and then they sent me a letter of intent so where it is right now is we have a letter of intent so both parties signed the letter of intent and then we move forward to negotiate a lease and uh, so it looks really good they're meeting today so the church when we went and saw it so I don't know you guys all impressed them if you went and saw it because they, they said they voted unanimously to work with us which is great a unanimous vote among Christians I mean who knew so anyway we had a unanimous vote uh, but we're working on it um, we'll probably have the letter of intent signed this week and uh, then we're just gonna ramp into a daycare preschool for January and then our goal is to use the facility to do the school um, within the year so by next year so just to let you know it's good news Right? Yeah, come on, that's good news. I'm excited. You should be excited too. And it's not about what the church wants, it's about what Jesus wants to bring into the world. And God, this is something God wants to bring forth. This is something that J Jesus wants to birth. And so even when God wants to birth something in your life, you may not always understand it. So I didn't sit down and go, hey, let me bake this up. What could we do? Oh, hey, let's do a school. That was not in my grid at all, at all. And I felt like the Lord began to show what I was asking for, he began to answer it with this kind of concept three years ago, and we've been actively working on it and pursuing it and bringing all of the ducks into alignment for the last few years. And um, when we were there meeting at the building and the lady, we all just began to pray, I felt like, because I was trying to go, well, two churches working together, Lord, that's really difficult, you know? And I've not had experience, very good experience with denominations, and the reason is is because if you move a chair, they want to have a committee meeting and bring you in and ask you why you moved the chair. You know, I mean, it just, it, it, usually it just doesn't work well. And uh, they were very complicit and very open, and everything kind of went well, and I was just kind of meditating and praying as we were all praying, 
And I felt like the Lord told me, it's not about what you want. It's not about two churches bring, coming in. It's about what I want to bring into the world. Amen. And yes. And so I feel like a lot of times we have to have perspective. And the perspective isn't what we want. The perspective isn't what we feel like. The perspective is, is what does the Father want? And what does he want us to do? And how does he want us to do it? And that's the question we need to ask. And that's the direction that we need to live our lives. It's towards what is he saying? Not what are you feeling? What are you, you know, what are you even capable of? So anyway, that's for some of you dreamers out there. Yeah, got dreamers. Praying again, asking the Lord for you. I got a lot of things I want to teach you, but I felt like the Lord was dealing with me to do the life of David. So Elijah and Elijah, we finished that. Now we're going to go back into the past and we're going to go through the life of David. Yeah, I love it. You guys are excited. I'm excited too. And so, uh, but before we get to the life of David, I'm going to run you through the next couple of weeks in context of the book of First and Second Samuel. Because there's a lot of background that happens leading into the life of David. And it, we not just want to see what David is, we want to see the arcing plan of God. We want to see what God is trying to do and where the Lord is, what God is actually doing to bring, when, and when we get to David, it's not what he was building into this the whole time. This is what he wanted to do. And so we're going to set up the context of what, um, of, of, of the background as it relates to David. I would say this to you, it's going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. If you want to read and follow along, you're more than, help, more than encouraged to do so. A lot of books in the Bible sometimes are difficult to decipher. If you, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, like what is he talking about? Jeremiah, they're prophetic books. There's a lot of prophetic declaration. But First and Second Samuel are narrative books. So they read like a story. So they're very easy to follow. It's very easy to read along. So if you want to read through First and Second Samuel, you're gonna, you'll, you'll get an idea of where we're going to go with this. And, and God's going to probably highlight a few things to you as you go along. So they're, they're narratives. So God is looking to establish the kingdom. What's happened is, okay, here again, the history, God is always working through his people. I, amen. I, go figure, right? Of all of the things that he could do and all of the ways that he could do it, he chooses you and me. Amen. He forms a body of people. He blesses individuals, and then he forms a group and says, I want to do this individually, and I want to do this on a group level. He chooses to work with broken people like you and me dysfunctional, shot out, people with issues, all kinds of crazy stuff, and he chooses you and me. <laughs> what an honor. What an honor. People go, we don't, we have to serve the Lord. We don't have to, we get to. You know, and you're like, you're choosing me? Yeah, he's choosing you. God is looking to establish the kingdom amongst his people. So he's moving them out of their darkness, out of their waywardness, and he's really, his arcing plan is to develop and to establish dominion ministry among his people. What does that look like? Everybody say this with me. Kingdom, Kingdom. means Kingdom. king's Kingdom. dominion. Kingdom. Means the ruling, reigning authority of the king. This is what he wants. He wants a group of people where the kingdom is operating in their life and the kingdom is moving through their life and going into the world around them. What does this look like? You become born again, you are born into the kingdom, the dominion, the rulership, the reign of God. Your spirit now is under the authority of the Holy Spirit. You are in the kingdom of God, spiritually. But, let's just be honest, where Christians are most of the time, what God wants is for you to take that kingdom, the spiritual kingdom that he's given you, and he wants you to begin to move the kingdom out into every other area of your life. A lot of believers have good dominion, they're born again, but the kingdom of God does not rule their mind. They do not think heaven to earth, 
They think on a conscious, earthly level. They think on a carnal level. So you're born again. The kingdom of God is in you spiritually, but you do not operate with dominion within your mind. You do not operate with dominion within your emotions. You're in constant baggage and authority and layers upon layers of fear and insecurity and unworthiness and un all of this nonsense. The dominion is not ruling you spiritually, emotionally, physically, whatever, financially, all of the key areas of our life. Relationally, our future is not ruled by the dominion of God. It's ruled by fear. It's ruled by intrepidation. That's a problem. And what it does is it's revealing to us that although we're born again, our, the dominion of God needs to move out into these areas. And that's the key. And that's the challenge. What needs to be understood is why it's not, everybody say this, it's difficult, but not impossible. It is impossible on a human level, but it is supremely possible on a spiritual level. The devil resists two things, okay? He's doing a lot of stuff, but if you want to get really rooted on where the opposition is to the believer, it's in two areas. Say this with me. I'm, you're going to love me for this one. I'll usually get a pushback on this. Say this. Jesus, but I love it, is not, or no, no, say this. The devil is not anti-Jesus. Just let you think about that for a minute. And then we say this. The devil is anti-Christ. Huge difference. Huge difference. Christ means anointing. The Christ, we are called Christians, are we not? We're not called Jesusites. We're called one. It's true. We're called those who... Christ means anointed, empowered. You can go anywhere. You can go to Walgreens. I was in Walgreens the other day, and I'm walking by, and it's talking about, you know, Jesus. I was on a website, a news feed the other day, and it was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. You can go anywhere you want, and there's not an issue with Jesus. Nobody has, and most religions don't even have a problem with Jesus. What they have a problem with is anointing. What they have a problem with is power. The inbreaking power of the Holy Spirit. That's where they have a problem. It's called an antichrist spirit. And it's not just in the culture, hold the chair. It's in the church. It's in the church. We have an antichrist spirit within the church. What does it mean? We oppose the anointing at every turn. We are in opposition to the moving out of the Holy Spirit and the anointing. We don't understand it, so we're ignorant with it. Or we think we understand, so we use it, the anointing, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't understand him, so we're ignorant of him. Or we think we understand him and we're arrogant with him and we think this is how he operates. That's where the church is, right? But we resist the anointing. The enemy resists the anointing and he resists the kingdom. What does the Bible say? The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. It doesn't say Christianity suffers violence. It doesn't say you're going to be violently opposed for being a Christian. But when you start to press into dominion and you start to press into authority, you're going to face violent opposition. The devil's going to throw the kitchen sink at you. You start trying to get dominion over your emotions. You start trying to do inner healing and deal with the damage and everything. He's going to throw the kitchen sink at you. You start trying to get your mind into the mind of Christ and start going into the areas of the Spirit and beginning to bring your relationships and your everything into the authority of Jesus, you're going to, you're going to come into, into opposition. He's not opposing anything else. He's opposing the anointing, and he's opposing the dominion of God. So if we understand this correctly, if the devil is in opposition to the anointing, shouldn't we value the anointing? If the devil's in opposition to the kingdom, shouldn't we value the kingdom? 
that tells you right where God is, right? And the church is locked, that's right. The church is locked in tradition and religion. So we have to understand what is being opposed in our life. When we begin to move forward in our faith, that's when all of the opposition comes. When you begin to move into obedience, into the things that God has you, and you begin to align yourself in order that dominion would begin, the kingdom would begin to rule in that area, you're going to get opposition. People, I started tithing, pastor, and I lost my job. Keep tithing. It's true. I started operating in the anointing. I started walking in the spirit, and all of these things began to happen. I started to get, I started to worship God, and I started to begin to get into the spirit, and all of a sudden, all this baggage and all this junk started coming out of me, and I started realizing that, you know, all of my my life became just, my emotions started going all over the place, because the dominion of God is now coming into your emotions, and the devil is manifesting what he has against you to keep you back. This is, this is like, this isn't um, Sunday going to meet and church stuff, guys. Right? So this is like reality, Christianity in the real world. This is what it looks like when the rubber is on the road. Right? This isn't religion. This isn't pretense. This isn't tradition. This is reality. And this is where Jesus wants us to go. He wants us to move us into dominion. And he wants to move us into greater understanding of the anointing. The anointing is power. That's essentially, if you want to know what it is, is it's power. Power from on high. We say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what do you think that means? No, let's be honest. How does he strengthen you? By what means does he strengthen you? Does he make you smarter? Does he come down there and get you to pump weights? No. It's kratos, the anointing of God moving in you and strength coming within you. That's what it is. And now you can do all things. I have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of wisdom. You see with revelation, how does that happen? Through the anointing. All of a sudden, things are different. All of a sudden, your perception's different. All of a sudden, you have an ability to be and do what you didn't have before. The anointing. That's the anointing. You understand that? There's different ways you can transfer the anointing. Exousia. There's dunamis. There's exousia. There's different different aspects of that. But to the personal believer, that's just one of the aspects. Ministering the anointing is a different level. Receiving the anointing is one level. Ministering the the anointing is a different level. So we're talk- I want to talk to you. We're not even going to get into the ministering of the anointing. That's what we do in the morning. That's what we're doing here. Right? When, I, when I did that little prayer, told you to open up your spirit, told you to receive from the Lord, that's called ministering the anointing. That's one of the aspects of ministering the anointing. Laying hands on someone, releasing, exousia, that's ministering the anointing. Right? Those, that's different aspects of ministering. Receiving the anointing personally, that's a different level. But that's where God wants you to do. What's happening is the people of God, God wants to establish the kingdom. So here's the deal. In order for God to bring dominion ministry among his people, he has to establish two things. He has to establish the priestly ministry, and he has to establish the prophetic ministry. God had been working to establish the priestly ministry, but the priestly ministry was very, very weak. And the prophetic ministry among the people is non-existent. What you're going to see through the book of Samuel is God is establishing those two things. He is renewing the priestly ministry and he is establishing the prophetic ministry to do what? To bring about dominion. And once he has priestly ministry where it needs to happen, and David was a big, anybody ever heard of the tabernacle of David? Okay, big part of the priestly ministry came through David, right? And so not just the priestly ministry among the priests, David showed them a new way and said, this is what God wants. He wants this. And they began to follow it. So he not only establishes, he renews the priestly ministry, establishes the prophetic, and then gives them dominion. 
At no other time did Israel have the power that they had under David. God established dominion with David. His enemies feared him. Nobody wanted anything to do with that dude. Okay? They had rulership on every level. Every other nation was, there, was subject to them. They didn't hold on to it very long, but God nonetheless established it. And if you want to see a path of how God brings to dominion or rulership, he does it through prophetic and he does it through priestly. If you ignore the prophetic and you ignore the priestly ministry, you may as well erase any idea of kingdom ministry. You may as well forget it because it's not going to happen. So people are already going, well, what's, what's priestly ministry? I'm glad you asked. We talk a lot about prophetic ministry. We're going to talk a little bit about priestly ministry today. Okay? So we are born again. We are priests. Did you know that? Did you know you're priests? Did yeah. you know that? You're not just priests, you're royal priests. Totally different. You have divine royalty, you have a position of authority, and you have a ministry of priestliness. We are not of the priestly line of the Levites. In the Old Testament, they were, the priests came of the caste of the Levites, a tribe of the Levites. We are of Jesus Christ, our high priest, who is of the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. Which I yes, thank you. Which I don't have time to establish, but nonetheless, it's a different dynamic entirely. But what we can learn from the Levites is what the responsibility was of the priest and how they ministered and what God looked to them to do. So we need to understand this. If we are priests, it behooves us to understand what it means to be a priest. If we are a prophetic people, Acts chapter 2, all y'all can prophesy, and, all, and God would that all his people prophesy. So it's clear in the scripture that we're priestly and we're prophetic in order that we would be kingdom people. That's the goal. So if we are prophetic people, then it is our responsibility to understand what that means. If we are, God calls you a priest, it's our, it's our responsibility to understand what that means. We think, most Christians think that Jesus is Walt Whitman, or Law Henry Longfellow, or Thoreau. We think he's a poet, and he's just writing prose for us to be, be wow. Look at the eloquency that Jesus writes with. Royal priesthood, holy nation. Oh. And we skip around. We're royal priests, we're royal priests, we're royal priests, throwing flowers in the air, laurels on our head. Woo -hoo -hoo -hoo. And we don't know what it means. We never answer what it means, and we just treat the stuff like it's poetry. Do you know what it means? People go, we're kingdom people. Yeah? You mean talking about kingdom people? I always have this conversation, and I always ask them, I just was a group of people, and they're all talking about kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. I said, okay, before we talk about kingdom, let's talk prophetic and priestly. Do you understand that? Because you can pronounce kingdom all day long, but it's not coming until you get these two right. It's prophet, priest, and king. It's a progression. It's not just the title Jesus bears. It's also a progression of authority. It's a progression of revelation. It's a progression. 100% sure. So the Levites had a high priest. They were to be the sons of Aaron. They were to wear the ephod. So they wore a vest, and on the shoulders, the actual translation is sardonyx. Some would say it's onyx, but the, the actual translation is sardonyx. Sardonyx is a tricolored stone. So the priest would wear shoulder pads with a stone on it. He would wear a vest that had 12 stones on them, right? And he would wear that. And what it was, was God was reflecting back to the people, to his priest, how he sees them. So we have this tricolored stone. I won't get into that, but I will get into this. The, the 12 stones that were on his chest, they were stones that represented the tribes of his people. What the reflection was is, I want them to know how I see them. You are precious stones. I bear you in my heart. You understand that? I want the people to know how me, their high priest, actually sees them. And then I carry them very close to my heart. He didn't go, go out and get me 12 lumps of coal and put them up here. 
so that when I'm ministering, they can go, okay, this is who you guys are. Okay? Y'all are lumps of coal. Give me some dried manure to stick it all over you. This is, what I, this is how I see you. He didn't do that. He showed them as precious to him. He said, my people are precious to me. They're not precious because they say they're precious. They're precious because I say they're precious. This is, that is. This is the understanding and the revelation. If you get that, all of this unworthiness is going to go. We have got to crucify the attitude of unworthiness everywhere we see it. It has to be done. We have this perception of not being worthy. And the church, the church walks around and we beat you with it. You know, they beat, you know, well, you were worth, walk worthy, brother, walk worthy. And I'm like, how you doing? You walking worthy? You walking worthy? You can't be worthy without him. You can't be holy without the spirit. Holiness is only possible with the Holy Spirit. I tell him that. No, who is holy? Who is righteous? None. You already are. God does. You, you don't you don't get to say you're not worthy when Jesus says you're worthy. You don't get to say that. So here's your worth, here's your value, and you're living a lie that tells you, and what you're doing is you're manifesting a lie. You believing you're not worthy. Who told you that? Jesus doesn't tell you you're not worthy. You don't know what I've done. I'm like, I know I don't know what you've done, but you don't know what he did. So the issue isn't what you did. The issue is what he did. And if you'll understand that you are worthy, and you'll understand that you are accepted, and you'll understand that you are a son and a daughter, and you have a right, and you have an inheritance, and you have a place within the family, it's amazing how you'll pivot and begin to live that way. People that have a hard time following Jesus, and they need rules and regulations, they don't truly understand who they are. The love of Christ compels me. I can't make a mistake even if I try. And if I make a mistake and I fail, my failure does not disqualify me. Nothing separates me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's how you can live free. And we want to say, well, it gives them a license to sin. And Paul goes, if you, have the, if you, if you really understand that God, well, God's going to forgive me and I have a license to sin, then you don't have revelation at all. That's another lack of understanding and a lack of revelation. God, grace is the opportunity for you to pursue him boundlessly. Grace is the opportunity to love him without regard for anything else and without fear of failure. You cannot fail. It's not an opportunity for you to go and sin. So when people go, well, we got to be careful, Pastor, because we don't want to give people a license to sin. I'm like, really? Do we even understand grace at all? Do you understand what, it, what the purpose of this is? The purpose of grace is to give people the freedom to worship him without regard. And to experiment in the depth of love that we have for him. And the depth of experience that we can encounter with him. Knowing that we can do no wrong. Come boldly before the throne of grace. It does, you, know, you know what's interesting about that? Is that verse is not prefaced like, you know, you need to make sure you get down and you repent. And make sure your heart's clean before you come in and then come boldly. It doesn't say that at all. It says come just like you are. You come in boldly. Just as you are. There, there's something about it. When you start realizing that you don't disqualify you. Say this with me. I cannot disqualify me because I have not qualified me. All things are, all things are, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. This is what it looks like. So you have freedom at such a level. You have forgiveness at such a level that all things are lawful. Now that freaks people out. That freaks pastors out to no end. They freak out at that verse. But that verse is supposed to freak you out. What does it mean? It means everything 
is in liberty, but not everything is going to profit you. It's not going to profit you. Am I free? Does my action condemn me? No, I have no for now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing I can do to condemn myself. What I do in, in making that action is I produce an unprofitability in my life. Wow. And that action removes me from the destiny that Jesus has for me. That's why it's not profitable. You understand that? Yes. That's the point. When you get a revelation of liberty, Jesus is like, I'm all in. I mean, you are just like, you're like that. And you're at a place where he wants you. He doesn't want you like this. He wants you wide open. He wants you that, he wants you that way. He doesn't want you the other way. So these guys, the priests were responsible, before I get into that, the priests were responsible to cultivate worship. So this is, our, this is who we are. Our responsibility, corporately, is to cultivate worship. That's what we do. So how do we worship? Well, we worship with we worship with worship, adoration. We worship with power, the laying on of hands. We worship with the word, the ministry of the word. That's what's happening now. And we were they were to minister with spirit and blood. So the priests were responsible. That's all of us. We are responsible to learn how to minister to the Lord and from the Lord. We learn to create an atmosphere of worship within our own lives. And within our, we, we do it corporately. The corporate is the model to the individual. Okay, so there's a corporate worship and there's an individual worship. They were to learn to worship with, with, in adoration, in the spirit. They were to learn to worship and, and minister with power. And they were to learn to worship with the blood of Jesus and the, the spirit. And you see it in the Old Testament. The priest ministered when Solomon dedicated the temple. The priest began to cultivate the atmosphere of worship. The glory fell and everybody's like, whoa, they couldn't even go anymore. Because the priests were cultivating the atmosphere of the spirit. The priest, the priest was responsible for the ministry of the blood. They took the sacrifices of the people, they applied the sacrifice to the people, and they, and they applied the sacrifice before the Lord. It's the ministry of the blood. It's what you hear me saying all day. I'm telling sons and daughters. What is that? That's the ministry of the blood. You're a son and daughter because the blood of Christ makes you that. Yeah. You are an heir of the eternal world because the blood of Christ makes you that. Yeah. You have hope, purpose, and destiny in this world because the blood of Christ makes you that. Yeah. It's the ministry of the blood. There can be forgiveness for sin. You don't know what I did. Too bad. You, you don't know what he did. The ministry of the blood. You understand? And we as priests, we minister that one to the other, and we minister that to the world around us. We minister the power of the Spirit. Next slide. They were to take the atmosphere. So the people were to come and watch the priest minister, watch the priest worship, and then the rest of the priests were to take that ministry home with them and into their workplace. They were to take that atmosphere wherever they went. They were to carry forth the atmosphere of God. I was just reading this um, book, this or this like uh, survey this week, and it was talking about happiness, right? And um, you know, a lot of people committing suicide, and one of the roots of suicide, these people, is is hopelessness. And so I was just curious, as you know, and I know that, but I was just happened to be reading the survey on um, on joy, and done by psychologists. It wasn't um, Christians at all, and they were talking about all the things that bring joy into our lives, and. They got to this one point in the survey, and they can't figure it out. They don't have an answer for it. But they linked church attendance directly to the impartation, or what they would say, the experience of joy. People who attend services every week, okay, that are in church every week, are 41% happier than those who do not. It's true. You have a 41% upgrade today just by being here. Yeah, that's true. You don't even have to receive anything. You just got a 41% upgrade tomorrow. Here it's here today. There it is. It's true. 
Because it's his presence. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. That's right. It's the atmosphere of his presence. It produces joy, and you don't even have to try. Like, I feel happy, and I don't know why. I don't even understand. I get people come here for the first time, and they're like, I don't know. I just, I just, you know, I know you guys are in a warehouse, and it kind of looks like a nightclub, but I don't know. I just, this is, this is weird to me. I just kind of like this place. It seems odd, but I don't know why. And I'm like, because it's the atmosphere of joy. Jesus is the desire of nations. He's everything everybody wants. They just don't know it. He is all you need and all you desire is found in him. He is the desire of all things. Eli, the high priest, so what's happening is, is the nation is in status quo. The high priest is leading the people, but the, the priestliness within the, within the, 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 among the people was tradition. It was religion and tradition. And it was maintaining a status quo. So I'm going to say this. Say this with me. Jesus, Jesus is, not is not interested in maintaining the status quo. He's not. God is a God of transformation. He doesn't change just to produce chaos. He brings change to produce transformation. He brings change to produce upgrade. He brings change to produce elevation. That's what he does. We believe it so much, we name the church Elevate because we believe God is calling you higher. He's not interested in you staying the same. He's calling you higher, higher, higher. And the priests, they, so what happens is the priests were leading the people with religion and tradition. And what it ends up doing is it, it produces opinion. So rather than the ministry being of the spirit and being of truth, it was, an, it, was a, it was a ministry of opinion, tradition, and it led to fear and weakness. God would have them to minister with truth, revelation, courage, and power. Which set of words is more attractive to you? So if I say this to you, opinion, tradition, fear, and weakness, what, does that attract you? What attracts you? Truth, revelation, courage, and power. That's what God wants, right? Eli has two sons. He has a son named Hophni, and he has a son Phineas. So I'm giving you the background that leads into David. God is trying to do something among his people. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to clean house. He's going to clean out the priest, and he's going to clean out this, and then he's going to establish the prophetic, and he's going to usher in the dominion of God. He's going to usher in the kingdom. This is the narrative. This is the story. This is what God's doing. The young man's sin was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt, and they caused the people to abhor the offering. You're going to see it twice. Their problem, and God had a problem with them, and they were doing a lot of wicked things. But the biggest problem God has is you hold my offering with contempt. What I ask you to give and what I call you to give, you are contemptuous towards it. You have the wrong attitude. You have a willful heart against what I have asked you for. And not only that, you cause others to abhor the offering as well. He's not going to say this once, he's going to say it twice. If you know anything about the Bible, if it says it once, it's important. If it says it twice, you better be paying attention. Because God is not in the business of repeating himself at that level. When he says it, he expects us to understand it. But if he says it twice, he's trying to reinforce something to us. The problem with the priest, the problem God had with the priest is he was calling them to do certain things, and they wouldn't do it. He was calling them to give offerings and to be, and they were contemptuous. Everything God asked them, it was a burden. It was a burden. Oh, I got to go to church. Offer me your presence. Oh, why do I got to go to church? Get involved. Serve in my house. Oh, that's just too hard. You don't understand. Give. Financially give. Oh, that's too hard too. Commit and connect with other people. Get in communion with other people. That's too hard. You're contemptuous towards what he's calling you to give. And that's a problem. And he, and he points it out. 
When the offering is not alive to you, it's an it's a indicator of a greater problem. When you don't want to give, and you don't want to give freely unto the Lord, there's a greater problem at issue with your heart. Okay? We are summoned and called and commanded to give in specific ways that God has ordained us to give. And your ministry and your priestly ministry is directly related to your attitude towards that. When I, I'll just give you an, I'll just give you an understanding because I'm going to free you guys so you guys can understand this is a human issue. This is an issue that goes across the board. Some of you don't have this issue. I happen to have the issue of being contemptuous with the offering. Yes, there was a period in my life. I've always been a giver, tither, all that, all, my whole thing. But I was connected and I was part of a ministry. And I was a leader at a very high level in this ministry. And I was really struggling to give into the ministry that I was a part of. I wanted out. God wouldn't let me out. Commanded me to stay. All this other stuff. Lots of reasons. I felt like God was calling me to do something. You know, I felt like God, and it wasn't an issue. The, the main issue was I felt God telling me to do something. And my leader at the time was telling me, no, that's not God. You know, and it's like as if, you know, you got the authority to hear the Lord from me. I mean, it's like that I submitted to him and all this other stuff. Long story, I'm not going to get into all the dirtiness of it all because it was, it was an ugly experience. But I yielded nonetheless. And I would continue to give. And I would have a problem. And so I would come to church. I'd have my offering back in the day when we had checks. Anybody remember the checkbook? Anybody know? Right? Back in the day when we had checks, I'd have my check in my back pocket. And I would go to give. And I could just feel the... the lack of desire to give. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, and I would go down the hallway and I'd separate myself and I would go down the hallway and I would go before the Lord and I would go, well, first of all, I want to know what my problem is. Why do I feel this way? You've got to validate your feelings and what your understanding of it and then let God minister to you. Then, if, then the Lord showed me, who are you giving to? Are you giving to, are you giving to this or are you giving to me? Where, where, where's it going, Kevin? You make up your mind and I'm, I'm giving to you. Well, then let it go. If you're giving to me, let it go. Why are you holding back? It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with me. Wow. So you're giving to me. Do you think God qualifies your offering by the ministry you give it to? Yeah. You're called to support the local church and support to give your tithe fully into the house. And you say, well, I don't know what they're doing with the money and all this other stuff. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter. Because God, they're accountable to the Lord. You understand that? I tell people this all the time, and I am extraordinarily aware of everything I say comes out of my mouth. I am held accountable. All should not seek to be teachers, for such will face a stricter judgment. So the stewards of the house, that would be me and the leadership of this church as we lead this church forward. The stewards of the house are responsible before the Lord for what they do and what they don't do. It's not an issue of what somebody, so pastors are so much afraid of doing the wrong thing that they don't want to do anything. You are not only accountable, the leadership is not only accountable for what you do, you are accountable for the potential of what you didn't do. That's right. You had the potential to do that, and you didn't do that. That's on the house, and that's on the people. Read the parable of the talents. God held him accountable for what the potential lied within the seed that he would not sow. He would not sow the seed. He would not do what God told him to do. And the Lord didn't point the seed. He pointed out the potential. You should have at least done this, and then there would have been interest. You were accountable for what you did, what you failed to produce, just as much. And it's not even an issue of mistakes. If you know Jesus, his mistake, he doesn't qualify his mistake, your mistakes. That's the big thing. You see, God, God rewards courage and daring. He rebukes cowardice. Important to understand that. Peter goes out on the water. He didn't rebuke his, he didn't rebuke. He's like, Peter, you were such an idiot. Why did you, why did you do that? He just told him. He said, little faith. See that? Little faith. You walk on the water. Little faith. Good job, little faith. Why'd you doubt? little faith. That's little faith. 
But where Jesus rebukes is cowardice. To be a coward is not acceptable in his eyes. It's not acceptable. Read how he deals with people. Every time they come to him in fear, the Lord's like, be strong and of good courage. I have no tolerance for fear. I have no tolerance for a lack of courage. I have no he has zero tolerance for it. And it isn't an issue. Then Lord, the issue is like, okay, I got this issue. Lord, help me with this issue because I don't want to be what you don't want me to be. I don't want to be a fearful, cowardly person when you have called me to be strong and courageous. I don't want to be that. We cannot accept God as viewing as God's acceptance of us or his acceptance in his, his reality. God does not accept cowardice. He doesn't. You hear me say it. Read Revelation. When the condemnation list is being, he's de dealing it out and telling everybody who doesn't have an inheritance, the number one on the list is the cowardly. Number one. Number one. Not the idolater, not the covetous, not the, not the blasphemer, not the, not the one who opposes the gospel. Number one on the list is the cowardly. Number one, that was cemented in my spirit long ago. And I made up my mind, you will call me fool, but you will not call me coward. He doesn't have an issue with you being a fool. He has an issue with you being a coward. That's where the issue lies. And so that's what we have to confront. That's what he wants. Eli's got two sons. They're doing all these contemptuous things. Eli was weak. Ready for this? Hold your chair. He loved his children more than he loved the Lord. Crickets. This is hard as a parent. It's very difficult. We take the parenting responsibility upon ourselves to a level that we should not. There is one perfect father. It's our heavenly father. He not only knows how to father, he knows how to mother. He relates himself also. He prominently presents himself as father, but he relates himself also as a mother who nurtures. He nurtures, but he also mentors, develops, and leads. God is the perfect parent on every level. And we take our children unto ourselves as if they are our responsibility. They're not. And anybody here who's raised a parent, or raised a, raised a parent, raised a kid. <laughs> any kids here who've raised parents, anybody here who's raised a kid, you're going to reach a point where you realize this is beyond my control. And this is beyond my ability. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. And what you have to do, listen, I've raised my children with this thing in mind. I told, my, I told the Lord this. I said, they're your children more than they are my children. That's your daughter, that's your son. I am extraordinarily limited, you are not. And what I do is I open up the gate and I tell the Holy Spirit, you have full reign and you have full authority. I don't have to agree with it, no, no, come on, it's gonna get raw, it's gonna get raw, it's gonna get real, this is about to get real. I don't have to agree with it and I don't have to like it. I just wanna know that you're working in their life. I just need to see that you're doing in their life what is going on, you know, and you will see that God's gonna come in. And he's going to start moving, and he's going to start orchestrating, and he's going to start changing. I just had this issue with my son. I shared this first service. Love my son. My son's a great kid, wonderful. I tell him, your greatest strength is your determination, but it's also your greatest weakness. My son is insanely determined. He has a drive that just is like, I mean, I've just never seen anything like it personally. And I'll just share with you, because it's called strong-willed child, okay? Any of you ever been a strong-willed child, or have you ever raised a strong-willed child? I would be like this. I would complain to the Lord about my, my son sometimes, and I would go, God, I do not understand how to raise this kid. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. He's got a temperament that I've never seen. I've never, I've never, I've never been around this. What do I do? And the Lord goes to me, the first thing you're going to do, Kevin, is thank me for your strong-willed son. That's what he told me. So the very first thing before we get into any of this, you're going to thank me for the power that I put in that boy. 
You may not know how to bridle it. You may not know how to direct it, but the power and the authority, the, just the strength that that kid carries comes from me. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to thank me for him. And my wife and I would have this thing. Every time my son would go crazy, we'd just go like this. Lord, we just thank you for our strong-willed child. He's doing all this other stuff. He's got all this stuff. He's telling me lately what time it is and how it's going to go. And I love my son. We have a great relationship all the way around. And my wife sees this with him. And okay, this, here it is, ladies. And so, guys, you can know. You go, you too? Your wife does that too? Yes, she does the same thing. She goes to me, Kevin, you need to get in there and you need to deal with this right now. You need to take care of this right now. You need to deal with it. I told Cherry, I said, listen, I cannot deal with this right now. If I deal with this right now, I'm going to lose it. Okay? I do not have the temperament or the self-control to deal with this right now. And so he would have, and I'd say, we're not having that conversation, Elias. We're not having that conversation. We're not going there. It's not happening. And he keep wanting to push it. And I said, I'm not doing it. And Sherry goes, well, what are you going to do? I go, first of all, I'm going to relieve, I'm going to center myself in the spirit. I'm going to give the Lord all of this anxiety, and I'm going to ask him what to do. You know, and I felt like God, my immediate prayer was, Lord, I release you. You have total authority. Do what you want to do with that boy. He's your son. You have you do I'm the gate, the door, whatever. No fence, no borders. Do what you want to do. Let it happen. And I felt like God was giving me wisdom on how to handle it. He comes two days later. He comes to his mom and he goes, you know, those decisions I was thinking about making, you know, I'm thinking what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit and I'm going to see what he tells me. And I go to her, I go, she said that? He said that? And she goes, yeah, he, he, that's what he said. So the point being, if you'll let Jesus do some parenting, he's going to do some parenting. If you'll take your hands off, and I know it's hard because it's an issue of control and it's an issue of trust, but the Holy Spirit will do what we ask him or give him permission to do. He loves your boys and girls more than you do. He loves them more than you. I know that's hard to understand, but he does. I tell the same thing. My, my son... We would have, we'd have this issue, and I would tell people, when you're parenting your kids, have grace for them. And not just have grace for them, apologize. This is a good, big thing. We used to put this culture in our house. My son would do something wrong, my daughter would do something wrong, and dad would lose it. I know you guys are not as spiritual as me. Or no, you guys are more spiritual than I am. But I would lose it, okay? In a holy, righteous, indignant way, I would lose it. And I wouldn't handle myself correctly. And so I would go to my kids when they were small, because I'd never parented before, so I don't know what I'm doing. And so I go to my kids and I say, listen, what you did there was wrong, but I want you to understand that the way that I reacted to it and the way that I handled this and the way that I spoke to you was wrong, and I want you to know that what dad did there was not right. And I tell them that, make it clear, and then I tell them, I need you to forgive me, and I, need you, I want to ask for your forgiveness, and I'd like to ask you for grace. And my kids at a very young age would go, I forgive you, I give you grace, Dad. And they hug, you know, hug it out. My son took this to a whole other level, okay? <laughs> he took it to a whole other level. So when he was a kid, he'd get in trouble. He'd run up to me and he'd go, Dad, I need you to forgive me and give me grace. <laughs> it was constant. And I didn't know what to watch this. I didn't know what to do with that. I'm like, okay, what do I do? And I would pray and I would ask the Lord. And the Lord told me, every time that boy asks you for grace, you give it to him. That's what he told me. And what's imprinting into him is that every time he asks his father for grace, it's going to come. And it's a mirror from heaven. And, and no, that gr what grace looked like was a diminished level of punishment. It wasn't like, okay, we'll go off and play now. You've just completely destroyed the house, Elias. No problem. Off you go. No, it would be, okay, you're punished. Here's your punishment. Give, forgive me and give me grace. So I would lower it, right? So he understood that if he asked for grace, he could get it. And he, and he did it all the time. I mean, that was like a trump card. He'd play that all the time. <laughs> Forgive me and give me grace, Dad. You know, no, my gosh, bro. You know, but anyway. 
Next slide. So, but you're modeling something to your children. And when you model that to them, you model when you, your kids don't apologize because they've never seen you do it. When you apologize to your kid and you take responsibility, what mommy did there was not right. What you did, you smashed the plate on the floor. That was wrong. But what I screamed and yelled at you, that was not right. I should have handled that differently. Please forgive me and give me grace. You see the difference? And all, you'll be amazed how your kids will start apologizing back to you. And they'll go, Mom, I'm sorry. And I, please forgive me. Give me grace. They'll start modeling the same thing. But if they don't see you do it and they see self-will and pride, then they're going to model back to you even greater levels of self-will and pride. Just how it is. He says, to, to, God sends a prophet to, to uh, Eli and he says, why do you kick and despise my sacrifice? There it is again. Okay. So the first thing he says is this. And then he says it again. You hate my offering. Every time I ask you to give an offering, you won't do it. Every time I ask you to give a sacrifice, you won't do it. He says, why do you despise my sacrifice and my offering? Ready? Which I command in my dwelling place. So the tithe and offering isn't the pastor's idea. It is a command of God within his dwelling place. Makes no sense, but it is. It's a spiritual action. It is called by God. We are called to support his church. There's some bag of gold that drops down from heaven. It's supported through the gifts and the offerings of his people. And God has promised that if you will sow, I will return. You are not going to be my debtor. I'm not going to be in debt to you. I'm going to reward you and blessing, and opportunity, and all these different things. And he's telling, he's telling Eli, your problem, Eli, is that you hate my offering. And then he says to him, that, and you honor your sons more than you honor me. His sons were doing all kinds of wickedness, and Eli did nothing but make excuses for poor behavior. And what he should have done is he should have dealt with them on the backside. He should have removed them from place of ministry. He should have publicly corrected them, particularly as they ministered before the Lord. And he should have said, my sons are no longer in ministry, and here's why. But he wouldn't do that because he didn't want, he had some kind of passive relationship with his, with his children. And so the Lord corrected him for loving his children and making excuses for his children when there should have been none. And Eli didn't, should have managed his house a little bit better and brought his kids into line. Kids are never going to be perfect. I get that. But their kid, they, these guys were doing stuff completely off the chart. And they were doing it from a position. And he should have at least removed them from the position. But he didn't even do that. Even when he knew they were doing wrong, he still didn't take the position from them. And that's a problem. He says, I've chosen you. He tells, he tells Eli this. I've chosen you. What have I chosen you to do? He tells him these things. To wear the ephod, to burn incense, to offer sacrifice, and to receive blessing. Do you know that's what you are as priests before the Lord? You are that. You are chosen. To do what? To wear the ephod. To minister before me, from me, unto me, to me, from me, and unto the people. I've chosen you. You get the chance to wear an ephod. You get the chance to hold the things that are dear to God, dear to you. You get the chance to minister before him. You get the chance to burn incense, which is prayer, sacrifice, all of these things. You get that opportunity to do that. And you get the opportunity to receive blessing. And so God's telling Eli, he said, look, I gave you all this. What's the, you know, and you couldn't at least pay me with the respect of honor and dignity? What's going on here? God's intent. So God's intention was for the whole nation to be priests. He says, you'll be my holy nation, my priests. This is what he tells the people in Exodus. God's understanding was that he would create a kingdom of priests and that the priesthood would mirror to the people what that looked like and the people themselves would operate in it. That's what he asked in the, New in the Old Testament. It's the same thing in the New Testament. Ready? You're going to say this. I want you to put your hand on your heart. You're going to speak it over your life. Say this. I am, I am chosen, chosen in my generation. In my generation. I am a royal priesthood. I am part of a special people. 
a holy nation. I will proclaim the praises of the one who has called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're chosen. You didn't choose you, Jesus chose you. You're a royal priest, a holy nation. So what ends up happening once is God wants us to worship before him. He wants us to understand what ministry is. Next slide. Did you do the next slide? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, what? Did it change? God sends a prophet to Eli and tells him that his house is going to end. This is important. This is an important aspect, too, because we can see God here. So God sends a prophet. The Bible says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. They didn't cultivate the prophetic. It was rare. But out of nowhere comes this prophet, and he starts speaking to Eli. And he says, listen, Eli, you, you've taken this thing too far. God's given you this opportunity. You don't want to do it, so therefore your house is going to end. And Eli is indifferent to it. So God speaks to him, and Eli doesn't care. That's a problem. He doesn't care. That's the first problem. And the second thing is he doesn't know the one he's serving. So it shows you, because Eli was indifferent, he just kind of went shrugged it off. And then the second thing that he didn't do, he didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't ask for another chance. He didn't ask for an opportunity to change. None of that's there. And you know what that means? It means he didn't know the heart of God. If he would have known God, he would have known, and he would have known God's heart, he had the opportunity to repent. He would have known that God would have given him a chance to right the wrong, or that God would have even partnered with him to right the wrong. But because he didn't know the Lord, he was indifferent to it, and he denied it. He should have known this. The priests were saturated in the words of Moses. The words of Moses, what Moses spoke through God, was of the highest authority to the priests. That's where you see it even with Jesus as he's interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're always quoting Moses. There's always this contrast and crossroads with Moses. He should have known this. Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord says, you want to know my glory? It's my goodness. Show me the glory. Show me the weight of who you are. And the Lord goes, you want to know the weight of who I am? It's kavod and it's my goodness. So God, Moses is saying, I want to know, the word glory is kavod. It means weight or substance. I want to know the substance of who you are. And God said, the substance of who I am is goodness. And he says, I will shove my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you the weight of who I am is going to pass in front of you, and then I'm going to tell you who I really am. And so the next chapter, the Lord passes before him, and God tells him who he is. And he says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, say it with me, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Ready? Keep going. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He should have known that. And he should have known when the Lord was correcting him, he should have played right into the mercy of God. He should have played right into the forgiveness of God. He should have leaned right in and he would have gotten mercy and he would have gotten grace, but he didn't. He was indifferent and he lost everything. Eli was indifferent to the glory. He didn't care about the weight of God's goodness. He even saw Hannah, Samuel's son, which you'll see in a, probably next week, Sam, Hannah, Eli's mother, or Samuel's mother's in the, in, the, in the church or in the altar before the Lord, and she's weeping and she's crying, and Eli doesn't even perceive the spirit with her. He thinks she's drunk. That just showed you how out of touch the guy was, completely out of touch, and he's leading the people spiritually. That's a problem. He was indifferent to the glory. His last, he has a grandson right before he dies, or right after he dies, and the grandson's name is Ichabod, which means no glory. Yeah. So the children of Israel at this point, I'm going to really fast forward to you, just so, but I want you to see this. They go out to battle, 
and they go out to battle in their own strength. What you see, the people, because the, the, the leadership was not leading the people into the spirit, was not leading them into the reverence and the honor and the glory and the goodness of God. They were, they, Eli was indifferent, the people were indifferent, and they went forth out to battle, and they did it in their own strength, and they were losing the battle, and so they go, hey, go get the ark, which tells you they treated the presence of God as if it was a token. Next slide. They treated the presence of God like a bellhop, and I realize we're in a modern generation. We don't know bellhop. So concierge would be a better word. They treat Jesus like he was a concierge. Bellhop is when you ring the bell, the, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? They treated Jesus like he was there to, for them. Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark, and they lose the battle, and Hophni and Phinehas are killed. And so what their, what their actions were was an exercise in vanity and religion. God does not have a problem with vanity in the sense of well-appearance. He does not have a, have a problem with religion in the sense of liturgy. He has a problem when vanity and religion supersede spirit, when vanity and religion supersede presence, when vanity and religion and tradition go above his heart. That's where the problem is. In other words, God wants things to look well. He's good with that. I don't care. He's like skinny jeans, smoke machines, whatever, Kevin, disco ball you know, vibrating, that's all great, but that should not be the substance of what you are. The substance of what you are should be spirit. The substance of what you are should be life, glory, love, power. That's the substance. You see what I'm saying? And he's not even, he's not even opposing them in the far of their liturgy. He gave them liturgy. He wasn't telling them, like, stop taking communion the way that you do. Liturgy's fine as long as it's done in the context of spirit. You understand? Like, okay, we take communion. That's an act. That's a liturgical act. That's a, that's, a, that's a scripted act. We do baptism. That's a scripted act. That's a liturgical act. Nothing wrong with baptism. Nothing wrong with communion. As long as it's done in the context of the spirit. If it's not done in the context of the spirit, it becomes empty, vain religion. Are we clear? That's what he's saying. So he's not condemning that as a whole and saying get rid of it. He's saying it's out of place. It's out of order. The people in the priesthood were distant. They treated him like a trinket. Say this with me. Jesus... Come on, it's going to help you. You're going to walk away with this. You're going, to, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to be saying this. You're going to be like, why am I saying that? Jesus does nothing without relationship. They had not formed and they were not operating in the relationship with them. They expected him to show up and the Lord's like, I don't know you. You've not taken the time. You're not, you, know, you guys aren't communing with me. You didn't even ask me if this was a good idea. You took this upon yourself. Off you go. He doesn't do anything unless there's relationship with him. He does everything through relationship, intimacy. That's the whole idea of priestly ministry. Priestly ministry is so powerful when you understand it. Do you know that you get to minister unto the Lord? Do you have any idea? You ever thought about that? You, you just get that concept around you. Our concept is, is that we are so busy trying to be ministered to from the Lord that we completely are lost to the understanding that we minister unto him. We, God receives ministry from you. And it's your worship, it's your adoration, it's your heart, it's your prayers, it's all of these things. The incense, the bowl of incense in the book of Revelation is what? Come on, help me. The, the, exactly. That's right. And what do you do with incense? And what is the per, what do you, you, you breathe it in. He breathes it in. You understand that? You, some of us, we need to stop looking to God to minister to us. And we need to grow up a little bit and go, Lord, I just want to minister to you today. I just want to thank you for everything that you are. I want to thank you that you're my father. I want to thank you that you love me. I want to thank you that you've deemed me faithful and called me into the ministry. I want to thank you for the gift of the spirit, the power of your word. I want to thank you for a hope and a future. You just begin to minister unto him. Some of you guys, you need to break the bondage of what God's going to do for you. Yeah, it's true. And a lot of you, 
Your, at your breakthrough lies in your honor. When you honor him, you have access. And where it's called, it's, there, there's a way of looking at it, it's seeking his hand or seeking his face. And everybody's looking for his hand. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Well, what about his face, his beauty, his glory, his goodness? You're, you're coming before him ex wanting nothing from him. Wow. Wanting nothing. Just give, coming before him to honor him. And, you, you know, and if you know the story that God doesn't, you don't come before God and give him anything without him blessing you. It's just, but you're not coming with that expectation. There's a time when you can come with that expectation, but there are times when we just need to come and just love him and just honor him and just bless him and just thank him just because. Just because. It's like when God told Moses, he says, Moses, let me goodness pass before you. And God says, I will be merciful to who I will be merciful and I will be compassionate whom I will show, I will be compassionate on those who I choose to show compassion. What's he saying? I'm going to be merciful just because I want to be. I'm going to be compassionate just because I want to be. I'm not doing it for any other reason other than the fact that I want to do it. And some of us, we need to become worshipers of God, and we need to just love him and adoration for him. It's going to take your, your, your interaction with him to a different level. So here's the deal. If you feel distant from the Lord, say this with me. The distance is easily closed. Say this. I am only as distant as I want to be. Mm -hmm. Jesus has left me. He's never left you. Never leave you, never forsake you. You're the one that moved. He didn't move. You're, he's still there. You've separated yourself. Distance is easily, easily closed. Return to him in worship and adoration. Return to him. Lord, I've been doing it my way. I've been, you know, I don't want to give that back to you. That's repentance. Repentance is return. I want to return it to you. Receive renewal. Receive restoration. It's easily closed. I was talking to a guy earlier this week, and I told him the Holy Spirit comes immediately. He wants to be with you so desperately that the minute you ask for him, he comes. And we have to say this with me. We need to learn to practice the presence. This is a neglected art with the believer. Practicing the presence. Holy Spirit, come. Boom. Just let him begin to move over you. Begin to move in you. Begin to swim where he's swimming. Begin to move and let him just let him move inside of you. Let him move over you. You start feeling revelation. Begin to go into the revelation. You start feeling the wisdom. Begin to partner with the wisdom. It's called practicing the presence. It's going to be hard for a lot of you in the beginning because you've never done it before. So it's going to seem a little weird and a little awkward, and you're going to have a hard time getting out of your mind. Well, get out of your mind and just get into the spirit and let the, begin to partner with that. It's, it, that's practicing the presence. God's going to show you things if you learn to practice. Some of you who practice it, you go right there. Others of you, you're going, what's happening to me? I'm not really sure what's going on. It's just, you know, your, your, your brain is rifling. Your brain's not going to understand it because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians. So if you think you're going to understand spiritual things with your natural mind, you're killing, you're, you, you may as well forget it. So you just release and receive from the Holy Spirit. You trust him. He begins to minister to you. He begins to fortify you. He begins to take you places. We take our rightful place before our Father. We learn to minister the water, the blood, and the power. This is what it means to be a priest. Number one is take your rightful place. You've been given a position. Why do you vacate it? You've been given something. Why are you not standing in the position? that God? He's given you a position. Take it. You didn't ask for it. You didn't send in a resume. You didn't qualify yourself. He's already qualified you. It's yours. So you take your rightful place before your father as a son and a daughter. You take your rightful place before your father as a priest. You understand that my role as a son and a daughter is to minister to my father. My role as a son and daughter is to receive ministry from my father. My role as a son and daughter is to not just receive ministry, but to minister that unto others. Now we're priests. Now we're clocking. Now we've got priestly ministry on overdrive. 
It's moving. Know the one that you serve. Understand glory and minister glory. Glory is the goodness of God. Eli was indifferent to it. He didn't understand it. He didn't really care too much about it. That's a problem. That's a problem. Ichabod over a church is not a good thing. Ichabod over a people, that means no glory. That's not a good thing. We have a lot of form. We have a lot of function. But do we really have glory? Do we really experience the goodness of God? Are people being transformed by the glory of God? Are lives being changed by the glory of God? Are cities being renewed by the glory of God? That's the question. Are the people moving from a perception of God as one way and beginning to see him in clarity of who he really is? That's the question. That's what glory means. Do we see the Lord as good? Do we understand him as good? Do we not only see his goodness, but do we understand that that goodness is for us? Next slide, last slide. We're going to pray. You guys want to pray? All right, we're going to interact with what we've received. Ready? Everybody say, I am getting out of my comfort zone. I may feel weird, I may feel vulnerable, but I'm going for it anyway. Here we go. Stand, open your heart, however you want to do it, but just partner with this. I want you to say this. Father, I take my rightful place. Come on, put your foot down. As a priest, before you, come on, declare it. I am royal. I am chosen. I do not understand all that this means, but I choose to live from this. Right here we go. I repent. I renounce any and all indifference towards your glory, towards your offering, towards your presence, towards your purpose, or towards your power. I renew my heart today. I renew my attitude before you this day. I proclaim and I receive restoration into every area of my life where I have suffered loss. You are the God of restoration. I proclaim before heaven and earth with all authority that my greatest losses and my greatest mistakes shall become my greatest victory. This begins right now. My future is bright. My life is hopeful. And my destiny is sure. You believe that? Come on. I want you to receive one more time. I want you to receive the blessing of the Lord. Just open up your hearts. Don't be too holy for a blessing. Let him love you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you.